The greatest thing from Quebec since Celine Dion and GSP. A pair of siblings. A couple of stellar young men. Two brothers. These two young men. Two siblings. The hard-hitting pair represent Canada. Welcome to Thinking Bros. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex. This is a show where historical accuracy meets philosophical creativity and blends into your island of knowledge and self-discovery. Today we will be discussing the second part of Heidi Grant Halverson's Succeed, a way to set goals to actually achieve them. But in the first segment, we will be discussing some of our favorite philosophical and non-philosophical quotes. Thank you for having me on today. It's a pleasure. You are my co-host, and I appreciate you saying thank you every single time. And I always will. So perhaps let me preface the following. When you hear quotes or read them online and whatnot, for the longest years no. of my life, okay. that's something I guess, I've thought that reading the quote is enough, right? It's going to be internalized. It's going to affect my internal representations as to influence my actions. <clears throat> and what it ultimately is, when you like a quote, is that you certainly relate it to an ideal version of yourself, right? Brevity is the soul of wit, right? I, I've said this uh, for the eighth time this time. And I say that, I'm like, yeah, be concise and whatnot. But then I ramble for eight minutes every time, right? So what it all comes down to is, if you truly care about something and you hear a quote, and you're honest enough with yourself for the, from the very first time that you hear that quote, to know that tomorrow when you forget it, you're not going to act as such, right? The most a, a good reading a good quote can do for you is affect maybe your next action at most if you're lucky otherwise you you'll repost it and tell someone that look this is what i find, find cool and important here's inspiration and then forget it and then when you think about it again the next month it's going to be like a revival of interest in that quote but it shouldn't because it should stick with you you should internalize these things i think this is part of the consumer society right you read quotes, read quotes, read quotes. Wow, this is beautiful. What a turn of phrase. What an insightful piece of knowledge. What it all comes down to is, we might talk about this later, but you need an implementa implementation plan, right? That's what it comes down to. When you hear a quote you like, you have to make it yours. You, you wanted to say something? I'm going to say what I mean by make it yours. Yeah, I feel like... Maybe this relates to how books are talked about too. Like in common parlance, people always say, oh my God, this quote, this book, like was so good. But almost everyone I speak to, when it's a book or a quote, as you said, it's you read it one time and it, it hits a string in you somehow that, that you relate to, but then you don't actually do anything about it. And maybe this has to do with the immense amount of information we have access to, like we can read so many books, read so many quotes, and we don't really ruminate over one thing for a while. I feel like there's a, a gold mine sometimes in the works of literature 
or the quotes that we read and we don't implement it just because we don't spend enough time on it. Exactly. What is, I'll just give an example of everything that I mean. Let's, have you filtered out quotes that you didn't put on your list that we're going to be discussing today that you could give me just, just for the purpose of the exercise? I have too many. I can, I can give you one that we may not use. Okay. We're definitely going to talk about this for 40 minutes, by the way. So, <laughs> so don't, don't worry. We, we won't, we don't have to get, mm, to, I want to say all of them. You want to say all of them? <laughs> what, what are quotes? Uh, don't, probably don't. The, no, oh yeah, I have one that I didn't include in my thing from Marcus Aurelius. He says, the best revenge is to not be like that. Okay, to not be that. I think it's pretty yeah. elegant. Well, like that. it's translated in different ways. The <clears throat> one I read was literally like, the best revenge is to not be like the one that inflicted the pain upon you. Yeah, yeah, okay. So when you hear that, you probably have this surge of inspiration of, yeah, vengeful people are bad, uh, whatever. But when it comes down to it, when you're in the moment and someone, I don't know, steps on your shoes, it ha it's happened to me way too many times, by the way. I I'm walking in the metro. Mm. And people are stepping on the back of my shoes and I'm like, do you not see the bag of snakes which constitutes my back? Do you not see that the person in front of you is a danger to you if you if you ruffle his feathers in any case so you would take that quote and what i mean by an implementation plan again no one uses implementation plan for quotes but if you truly think that's important to you what it all comes down to is one you have to remember it for for all all the time and two it has to happen it has to flow through your brain in the moment where you're you would be taking revenge and the only way to do that is to make it habitual that it flows through your brain right already so what you would do is you would create the most links that you can with your life you would think about the last three times you got angry you would predict perhaps the next two times you get angry you would try to convince yourself that in those moments the best thing to do is what Mar marcus aurelius is saying and then, now you don't have to think about some random quote with some random association to your uh, situation. You will be thinking about yourself in the past, predicting yourself to, uh, in, the, uh, in the future situation, right? So, I mean, road rage is probably the easiest one for me, right? If someone cuts me off, am I going to try to accelerate and cut them off again? Yes, but... Well, no, I absolutely don't do that. <laughs> don't, do not put that on my name. I like to passively, you know, be angry on the road, but that's okay. Laugh at them when they get stopped at the same red light. Yeah, that's usually enough, yeah. right? So, this is a perfect transition to my first quote. How, why did we stay in calm mode? Wow. Did we? I mean, sort of. I mean, I'm still half asleep, so I, I was <laughs> half acting at the beginning. So my first quote is by Dwight D. Eisenhower. And for those who don't know, right, he was an American military officer and statesman who served as the 34th president of the United States from 1958 to 1961. During World War II, 
He was Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe and achieved the five-star rank as General of the Army. He was also uh, involved in two of the most influential campaigns, war campaigns, in World War II. Although here there's some debate, yeah. right? Operation Torch and uh, the Invasion of Normandy. Good old. That's, that's just off the top of the dome. Um, yeah. Maybe we could get more and detail. So but... that's Dwight, right? That's Dwight. We know um, Mr. Eisenhower. <clears throat> and the quote is, In preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useless. But planning is indispensable. Mm. There are two things here, right? One, even if a plan breaks down, it is not a reason for you to think that the planning was useless. Because ultimately, what do people plan the most for? I don't know, schedules, perhaps diets. All of these things that lead to important goals. You might think that, ah, I, am, I make one plan and something goes slightly wrong. I oversleep by one hour and I was supposed to run at six in the morning, but now I'm waking up at seven and I already have something planned at seven. So there's no way I'm running today, right? Look, that's, that's what happens in my head, <clears throat> at the very least. If that stops you, if slight deviations in your plan stop you from accomplishing your goal yeah accomplishing your goal following through on the plan and suddenly you abandon planning as a whole and then obviously nothing works out right if you if you you know we learned this from succeed last time right if you plan to lose weight in 2024 i will lose weight all right that's it you're done nothing's gonna happen okay okay so number two is plans must must be dynamic when you come into something with your assumptions and your knowledge, your prior knowledge of everything, the bottom line is, even if I plan not to take revenge when people make me angry, uh, you, you know, I hang around bars and you know the, the power dynamics of those things and there's a lot of competition, there's a lot of jealousy considering, you know, this. So... When people try to step on my toes, at some points it's going to devolve into fights, and that's inevitable. Two, three, four, five guys, whatever. You can take it. Yeah, and obviously, obviously, what I came into that bar with a plan as that that's that works doesn't <laughs> is not to you know take revenge or be angry or fight. But the game's the game. What are you talking about? Again, all of these are examples. They might not be relatable to you. But, but okay, so what I truly mean is... Don't Wait, but finish your story though. Cause... No, no, no. I'm just saying that ultimately some situations are going to require you to completely deviate from your plan. Okay. But it being in place in the first place takes care of all the little logistics of what you did know beforehand. What you did know before? What you did know before. Right? So 
you go into something big and important, probably, right? If that's your goal, it's probably big and important and difficult and complex. Even if you know 30% of the territory ahead, right? Do you know enough? So you're going to diet, right? Do you know when you get hungry? Could you not, could you be away from home on those, at those moments? Do you know what foods you default to? Could you make it, could you implement a, a mechanism so those foods just don't find the, themselves into your house? Like a, a clever mechanism, like, I don't know, not buying them, for example. Ooh. So, again, I mean, in these cases, it comes down to self-knowledge, and then a lot of it does. A lot of it does, to introspection and self-knowledge. But a lot of times, if your goal is, I don't know, success in your career, it probably involves other people, and those are the biggest unknowns. So as long as you, I don't know, have learned all the terrain that you can beforehand, okay, and know yourself enough, and then took all the, your knowledge about yourself and put it, implemented it into a plan. So, okay, this is how I get angry. This is why I think it's important for me not to get angry. This is how I will calm myself down those situations because I know they will arise. And then something goes wrong with your plan and the way you assume the world would be. You just modify that little 30, 40, 50%. But it's 50% it's of the work is still done, right? So, again, obviously, Supreme Commander, he knows what he's talking about. And don't think that the failure of your plans means that the planning was useless. It just isolated a lot of variables for you. That's, that's the bottom line, I think. Yeah, for me, it resonated because of all the extra work we always do that seems to be useless for some reason. Let's say even as simple as studying for an exam or uh, more generally going through your education, you learn a bunch, a bunch of stuff which you're never going to use. Like for an exam, all the material, let's say is one gigabyte, on the exam, there's going to be like 200 megabytes. 100 megabytes, something like that. And all that extra 80% of learning that you did is, in quotes, useless. But if, let's say, your education is worthwhile and that knowledge is useful, uh, or even within the frame of the exam, let's say, it, it could have been that that 80% of knowledge that wasn't on the exam would be on the exam. So it's not necessarily useless that you learned it. And also, that's not a good metaphor because it's too controlled. In real life, things are less controlled, and the reason I think that plan, the plan is useless is because things will, will go uh, awry at some point, and the importance of planning or studying or doing all the extra work that you're, not, you're probably not going to use, the value of that is challenge arises, you know how to adapt. Like You have the knowledge. You say, oh, I talked about this in my planning phase like this is an option we explored we talked about it and even though we weren't supposed to implement it look things have changed and now it's suddenly useful i think that's how that's how things go things change and just spending time thinking about possible ways to do things even though most of them are not going to be used it's worthwhile yeah, but then you have to ask yourself, is there an upper ceiling to that? And of course, if you, if you look at an anxious person or a paranoid person, 
they're going to look at you and say, well, this is what you're saying is specifically what I'm trying to defeat. Sure. Right. If you don't know the upper, again, whatever. Right? Sure. But if you don't Aristotle's do any of that, golden mean. Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's the, you got to find the golden mean at one end is being unprepared at the other end is being overprepared. And in fact, I think, you know, the golden mean lies a little bit more on the overprepared side. You always want to be the guy who's ready for contingency and, plans. And maybe over, even overprepared more on that side, but just how you think about it is different. You don't have to anxiously think about it. You can say, I want to be the most prepared I can be. I'm going to do most, uh, more work than most people do, but not obsess about it. I, at the end of that process, I know why I'm doing it, and I'm doing it to, to be serene in the moment. And I think that's what it helps you do, right? You have a plan, which means like the step-by-step -step is determined for you, and you know what to do exactly. And all that extra knowledge, the 80% that's still in your head that you probably won't use, it, it keeps you calm too, because you know, if this happens, I know I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. You have options. I'd like to agree with you, and it, it is the pathway I took in my life, because obviously I've always been the planner, not the executor. But we can put a pin in this and discuss it later in the episode, but from what we've read from the second part of Succeed, I don't think you're right, because when you have a prevention focus, which is what I've had for a long time, maybe, and what you do when you plan or go into battle, the anxiety and not being optimistic is actually a source of vigilance. And vigilance is the form of motivation in prevention-focused things. So it's almost like you need to be stressed because then you'll be thinking, you'll have the kind of the energy to think about all of these things in the right light. Because if you're out there, you're optimistic, you're planning for, I don't know, a battle, and you're Napoleon, and you're like, ah, they're not going to surround our troops and uh, go from behind us, right? We should just go there. You know, obviously I'm caricaturizing, but do you understand? Just If you go with the mind frame of, okay, how am I absolutely going to lose? And again, I'm saying this calmly, it's true, and emotions can be an indicator of how you should think about something. Uh, if they affect you physiologically and you're out there curled into a ball in the corner of the room and you're stressed because 20, 20 more, more things than you planned for could happen to you, then whoops, we, we haven't found the golden mean, right? But I think you're, you're too optimistic in saying that you can completely abandon the you know, uh, how, how do they call it in the book? Pessimistic realism or realistic pessimism? Something like that. Sure, I don't think you can completely abandon it. I think what keeps coming back to mind for me is an exam. And when you prepare for an exam, you can, you can be overprepared, I suppose. If it's, I feel like if it's your first exam with a certain professor you never know what they're going to give you and so you can't be over prepared because some truly do give very very hard exams and you study a lot and i guess i presented it too idealistically in the sense that i said you can be serene going into it yeah. but i think it's one specific kind of serene the the specific kind of calm where you say 
I've done all I could. There's nothing more, or I'm satisfied with what I've done. And then, on the battlefield or during the exam, if a question comes up that's honestly too hard for you to have expected or something, you can stay calm. You, you can say, okay, I didn't study for this. I'm fine. I, I did a lot of work. I am comfortable with the work I did. Like, th that's the most important part. Or uh, in battle, I guess you're calm in the sense that you say, okay, look, I'm stressed right now. I have, I have men in my, under my supervision and I have their lives in my hands. But I did my due diligence. I, I know contingency plans. I know that I'm experienced, let's say, and that I did my homework on this. I know the terrain. I know whatever. And I'm prepared to react in whichever way is needed. And that's what I meant is I did what I had to do. That's fair. I think it goes into a discussion about healthy stress and it's beyond the scope. It's beyond the scope. Beyond the scope. I really want to write in our description. Uh, I think I already told you this. The only philosophy po podcast that goes beyond the scope of philosophy. <laughs> As we so often do. You want to start with your code? We're going to alternate? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We might get to my second one and then stop. I'm not going to lie. But okay. Okay, then I want, I want another one, though. Yeah, yeah, of course. Let's say... Uh, yeah, yeah, two, two. It's fine. Okay, honorary mention. Okay. Do what you want to want to do. <laughs> right. And eventually you'll want to do it. Yeah, and eventually you'll want to do it for the complete quote. And, and who this, said that? This is by Thinking Bros Alex. True, true. TBA. I don't know. If, it's sort of self-explanatory, I guess. But I, I thought about this back in high school, like before we. What is this? What does this apply to? Before, before I even talked about habit formation and William James and everything, I think it seems intuitive that you have to do what you want to want to do. You you imagine a sort of ideal version of yourself, and you start doing those things that that ideal version does, and. You develop a habit. I mean, if you have a reason for thinking you have to do those things, I don't think it goes that much against your nature that you can't develop a habit of doing it. And I do think it's a source of incredible power just to... For example, you tell me to learn... What's the... Not chess, but with the little... Checkers? I don't know if it's checkers. Is it the Bat thing where gammon? you... Is it the thing where you like overtake the other thing and then it dies? Yeah. I think it is, yeah. Okay, okay. So let's say you, you tell me to become a pretty competitive checkers player. Okay. Actually, I've never met one who plays like that. But when I get to it, when I, when I start the task, it's going to be extremely hard and demotivating. And oh, there's a, an enormous system before me, right? If you just use the the knowledge right because at this point it's been so proven and if you've developed any habit in your life and i guess i, I should have gone with fitness honestly but if you've developed any habit in your life and implemented anything that you, you before that you didn't do you must know by this point that in two weeks it's not just say it will be easier for you to do it you'll want to do it your day will feel feel weirder if you don't do it than if you do it if you genuinely stick to it for two weeks and that is a source of incredible power because you just disregard the eh, 
well, whatever. I don't feel like it right now. Okay, but is this important to me? Yes. Okay, in just two weeks, which is nothing compared to what my life length is, right? It's nothing. Two weeks? What do you, what do you mean? I don't even know what I ate this morning. The sacrifice is so little. Suffering for two weeks to set something that is important in your life, like a fitness goal or becoming a pro at checkers. Sacrificing two weeks of unenjoyment and knowing, by the way, that even tomorrow is going to already be easier than today because today you didn't even know what you're going into. Tomorrow, at least you know what you're going into. And I think even... We don't even have to commit to the fact that after two weeks, you're going to like it. You just have to have a period where you force yourself to do it because otherwise you'll regret it. If, if you say, this is important to me and I want to do it, you, you do not want to be the type of person that can say these things, consciously say, this is important to me and I want to do it, and then does absolutely nothing about it. I think it can happen that you start doing it, you get into the intricacies of checkers, you, you sort of find out what it's really about. Checkers maybe is too simple. Not that checkers is simple, I guess. Maybe there's theory, a lot of theory behind it. But Probably, yeah. Let's say f for a career or something or a hobby, at the, when you look at something at the surface level, you don't really know a lot about it. And then you investigate and you get into it a little bit and you realize this is not something I want to be doing. But I think it's important to go through, let's say, it doesn't matter, like those two weeks where you get into it and eventually you can say yeah this is not for me and you can give up or you've tried it you you've gave it you've given it your it's it's due diligence second time i use this today i don't know why and you can safely say okay i tried it and i truly didn't like it okay in the beginning i thought you were saying that you don't even have to like it in the long term but obviously that'll ju just fall apart right if yeah. i want to become a professional checkers players player and i don't like it after a month not even for one of those days, it's, it's, it's over. But you, what you were saying is that it will help you get answers, right? If, if not, implement a habit that you're going to stick with for the rest of your life, at least you'll get an answer. And that, that's what often happens, right? Let's say you're out of shape, you've never done any sport for a prolonged period of time, and you're like, man, volleyball is just it, right? I like the sun, I like the sand, I know how to find a team. Volleyball is my way out of this. You hesitate six months, you hesitate, you put it off, you, you say, ah, you know, I missed the first two games of the season. If, I'm, if I pay right now, I'll be paying for two less games. Let's, let's just do it next season, right? Mental Ikea. So you get out of it, blah, blah, blah. Eventually you, you get to it, right? You're like, you know, this is the one, this is the one. It's, I got my resolution. Uh, it's 2024, it's different. And then you get to the volleyball and you're like, well, this sucks. Yeah, you just hate it. You just hate the actions, the yeah. motor actions. And now you wasted six months and two weeks. And what you could have done for those last six months is try 10 different sports and then find your dream sport. Because ultimately, before you've even, even begun, you don't know anything. You might have an idealized version of what it is, but you do not know anything. When you get to uh, deeper into something, that's when you truly know if it's you or it's not you. Like for me, it's with psychology, right? Oh, I love helping people. Woo! I love, let, let's sit down and talk in an office. Then you go into psych minor major. And it's like, sit down for three years, spit back textbooks and circle answers. Okay, well, let me do that. One year, two years, 
three years okay well this is not for me so there it is is that is that all yeah i guess yeah okay i can conclude with one last one after okay well i'm guessing it's not gonna be a surprise when i say that my next quote is i know that i know nothing because it is imprinted upon my arm upon do you want to give flesh. a bio i don't know who i don't, I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah so socrates said well sure socrates was speaking to an oracle and then it had the oracle had to say why socrates is the smartest man in athens no Rome. the oracle just said that socrates was the smartest person in athens. right but then socrates wondered why oh okay i think i, I forgot the history no, of i think it. he f he came back and then he he told oh no someone else went to see the oracle so it he they got told that, that, that socrates, socrates was the smartest, smartest man and, and then, then he told socrates and socrates was like he oh, had to probably, explain yeah. it okay, okay okay i see i see oh but okay socrates didn't understand what the oracle had meant yeah and then in trying to explain it he was like oh it's because i know i know nothing right and look whatever that means to you i think i, I took a plato class and people People interpret it literally, where it was a legitimate class discussion of what he meant that he knew that he knew nothing, if, if, if indeed he actually did know things. Like, it was actually a discussion that we had to argue for and stuff. Okay. In any case. But, I mean, it, it's nuanced. You, he, he's not, like, sure. you can talk about it. No, you this can certainly, is what we're going to be doing right now, isn't it? Certainly. It's just, I guess people started their sentences with, well, I think that maybe he, well. <laughs> you just don't like hearing people's opinions. No, I'm just saying it's quite objective what he means with it, but whatever. So here are all the things that I've outlined it to have value in, right? Number one is eternal curiosity. Now, eternal curiosity is a factor that I think the prophetic thinkers like Alan Watts and Neil Postman have. <laughs> and I think this is how you truly just unlock life. And in a spiritual sense, the universe. If you think about who's that guy from... Uh, blacklist Ray raymond Reg reddington you know how he's just eternally curious wanting to find out about art pieces and coming up with all these stories where the most magnificent magnificent thing about them is you know the motifs on the persian butterfly. rug no the aladdin so <laughs> <laughs> i think people who are eternally cur curious are the people who are the architects who are going to go and just be interested in nature and discover that beehives have a hexagonal configuration and just build something with the structure of a beehive and revolutionize architecture, right? Those are the people. The artists who get interested in mathematics and understand that paradoxes and infinities are beautiful things to illustrate and uniquely combine these two things, right? 
I think this comes back to our episode on intelligence. We identified there to be two types of intelligence. If you see the bank of human intelligence as just a million dots, just a cloud of dots, all interconnected, and around them is a fog. Creative intelligence is blowing away that fog and showing people that there are more dots to be discovered outside of the art cloud. I feel like we didn't talk about creative intelligence versus... We did, we did. Okay. And the other type of intelligence is creating the links richer and larger in quantity links within the dots that, that humanity already has access to. Right, so if you're creative enough, you're going to discover a new medicine and then that medicine will be used to treat other diseases because of someone who just kind of tested its links with other things that we already know, mm. right? Mm. At least you accept the model if you, if you don't remember. I think we talked about creating new dots outside of the field of dots already existing, right? No, but densifying the links between the existing dots, we certainly talked about. Yeah, it. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the first one is not blowing away the fog. Oh, creating new creating dots. a new dot yeah, next to the that field. knowledge exists, is what I'm saying. It's true that we maybe didn't even mention the fog. It's just a pretty cool metaphor, I guess. The knowledge exists, you know. Yeah, yeah. We just discovered platonic we forms of exactly, knowledge. Exactly. Exactly. So, I think the people who are eternally curious, and of course, if you know nothing, you'll be inter eternally curious. They are the people who can. Create, create these interdomain links that truly make humanity more rich. Yeah, I don't know if you talked about it last week a little bit or in, if in the five minutes we'll have on success we'll talk about it, but this relates directly to performance versus mastery goals, right? Yeah. Eternal curiosity is sort of a mastery goal uh, oriented thing. You will have more fun doing it if you if you are eternally curious it's it's not fun to well and then yeah actually that's completely in the discussion about success so i won't talk about it but it, it's really about learning to master a thing and the the joy that comes from it and from discovering new things also yeah mastery is fun in itself that's that's the bottom line then there's humility Right, being humble. That's the main reason I got this tattoo is because I had a huge ego. And I was just, I just had to remind myself in a philosophical way where like yeah, look, you, you don't know anything and all of these people don't either, and that's fine to you know, it's not fine to be condescending towards them, but it's fine to acknowledge that when you hear them out, the majority of people absolutely don't have anything interesting to say. But guess what? There are people in this world to whom you wouldn't be interested whatsoever as well. So how do you... <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you managed to turn it against the quote. I know. <laughs> I know. It's like I, I still put myself in the 80th percentile and I was like, well, the people below me are pretty dumb but uh, i'm pretty dumb to the people above me but i'm still in the 80th percentile but no but yeah it feels like the quote hasn't been internalized completely <laughs> but it's it's not that 
because now, you know, if we, if we go past the haha, it's funny that you're arrogant thing, we are, we, unfortunately, we do have an above average intelligence, right? It's, it's true. It's just true. And all that we have to ask ourselves now is, okay, what do we do with that? And what I used to do is be condescending and laugh at other people. But now we've talked about the allegory of the cave. And what I, what I really do now is, first of all, I p pity them. And second of all, I try to help them. I, I, I do. I, the way I see it is that it applies to everyone, even those in the 90th percentile. In the sense that just as someone above you in intelligence shouldn't view you as you see people below you in intelligence, or ju the just as had no place in that sentence, but the people above you shouldn't view you as you view people under you in intelligence. Because even if someone has an IQ of 140, or I guess no, that's not insanely high, even if someone has an IQ of 200, that has no implications about their moral status, how, what, how good of a person they are, and no implication necessarily on their work ethic. I think that you can be working a lot harder than someone who's above you in IQ score, let's say, and be a, a much more moral person. And, I mean, ultimately, I think that's what constitutes the, the goodness of a person. Obviously, we shouldn't look at IQ uh, to, as, a, as an indicator of the quality of the character of a person. And I think that that's what we have to learn from everyone. And that's why no one knows anything ultimately is that even smart people you know they can create all these links between all these things but if they don't do it i don't know i guess humanely or if they're not hard working then they'll never get to anything even if they're smart no there's, there's just other things to consider and these things you can learn from people that are less smart than you i see i see so the oblivion like the that person walking around with a smile 24-7, that is the def definition of uh, ignorance is bliss. Just, you know, walking through life and having fun, being nice to everyone. <laughs> the 200 IQ genius concentrating on improving the earth could benefit from, you know, just kind of smiling at people sometimes, which would make the world a yeah. better place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a little bit preachy, but I, I like it. You're right. Uh, of course... My next point kind of defeats all of this good direction that the conversation took, and it's <laughs> it's good. It's a good way to beat dummies in arguments, because people do not like. This is what I learned recently again, and I should have known eight years ago. Debates are for debate clubs. You don't debate with people at a table. That's that's the ultimate thing. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Okay. So, see how I just quotes in a third quote that wasn't even written on here? Who's so, that by? I don't know. So, um, Eminem, probably a rhyme. That'd be cool. So what you do at a table and whatnot, you agree with the person and then you say, that's what I, and that's what I used to think. And then you shift it <laughs> and you go through your logical progression towards coming to 
your opinion, which is opposite. And now, it's almost like you're taking their hand from where they are and taking them to your level. But instead of developing a logical argument, you're still telling them the logical progression of your thoughts is just now, it's a history-centered uh, history thing. And... Just like this podcast. Yeah. So, if you know that you know nothing, and you, you always assume that you know nothing, you use the best argumentation technique. And it's asking other people questions. Like, this is a... The first thing I said is one of the, the ways, it's not really in relation with the quote, it's just some, a technique I discovered recently. To instead of arguing with people, just agree with them, agree with them, give it to them, take away their defense mode, right? Because as soon as you say no, that's it, right? We're the conversation is over. It doesn't matter if you're the best logician on earth, you're you're nothing. People don't like to be wrong. I feel like that's just always the way I talk, like all the time. I always say, Yeah, yeah I can see. I can see what you're saying. Like, if you, I think if you look back at the podcast, that, no, it's, that's it's what I always true. Say. But it's also it's 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 made much easier when I always say the truth, right? The also, can you use this technique if you didn't use to? I, I'm gonna just ignore that. Can you use this technique if you? If well, it you, doesn't work if you say you ignore. Uh, can if you, you didn't use, the, use to think that? Can you use the technique? What, what did you say? Can you use that? strategy for defeating dummies as you say if you didn't used to think that you say oh yeah i also used to think that and you take them through their logical progression you can't i i like that idea and it's not i, I wouldn't say bring them to your level but but i know i know uh, i would say shifted their perspective but. yeah 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 yeah. that one that one <laughs> i want that but so. like if you're if you're honestly doing that i think that's great and you say okay look these are the steps i've taken and then the other person can say okay this is where we disagree on this step I, that's not a step i would have taken if that's if you didn't use to think what they thought you can't just say that's what i used to think and then you, you just hammer your of course point you home. can of course you can you you just have to smooth them into your opinion look okay Sometimes what it takes to change an opinion is not just logical, rational arguments. You have to like have lived through something and then you oh. realize it through oh. experience. That I understand completely. And that's what I, why I understood that I was convincing no one through all my years of, uh, you know, trying to be the best logician I can. That's worth nothing. But uh, again, the actual strategy that Socrates uses is to ask people questions and let them run into contradictions. So this is the uh, the second thing that I isolated from uh, my point about winning arguments. The first one was just a, a recent uh, technique I heard, but the actual strategy is to ask questions and let them run into a contradiction. Say an opinion, right? Say an opinion. Me? Yeah, yeah, you, you. Ronaldo is the best soccer oh, player. Oh, really? Wow, okay. Well, where did you did you read that, or have you been following him for a while, or what's going on? I've been following him for a while. Okay, have you been following Messi though? Yes, also as well. Okay, so have you? Do you know statistics? Do you know? Well, I guess I didn't pick the right example because I don't know statistics. Well, what are your and criteria? That's actually it's not just, my opinion. What What are your criteria on evaluating that? Right. I look at them play, and I determine who's the best. Oh, okay, okay. Do you know about analysts? Yes, I know about analysts. Right, right. Do, do you know how they, they masterfully and skillfully, as a job, 
analyze people who do ambiguous things and but evaluate them. see you don't believe that i just don't care about the ronaldo thing no you don't you don't believe that in the sense that if if you were saying the same thing about, if i was saying arguing the same thing about a movie you would completely just disagree with me about this that strategy you heard about critics dude critics that's their job to evaluate the whatever whatever so wait what what do you mean i would completely disagree i don't oh, I, 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 I would disagree with the argument that analysts yeah. are a thing yeah well again no for sports right that we've determined in the episode i actually respect analysts okay but the second thing is what you're trying to say to me through the last two techniques that i told you is that you don't want me to lie essentially yeah is that if i do use them i usually don't want me to lie okay that's true and in this case i would use analysts even if i didn't believe in them to take you over to my side because i like messi and truthfully if you ask me the, the same questions i just say that ronaldo's just too arrogant i don't like that yeah uh, just for the record i like messi a lot more too but i think my argument for that is just look at them play messi plays better like <laughs> well, th th that's fair but then if you think that the ultimate criterion and this is actually truthfully what i think yeah if you think the ultimate criterion for whenever we say who is the best player mm. is your evaluation of their gameplay i think there's something flawed with your view and look i have the same view that's the reality of it yeah yeah like i look at messy play i really enjoy what i'm seeing more than what and, <laughs> and just just to i i want to stay on this actually for a bit but like, thankfully, Messi also has the popular opinion as being the best and also has won more trophies, I think. So with those objective measures, that that's the case. But in team sports, like people always say it's about the championships you, you win. But like, what if what if you were born in Moldova and you're the best player in the world and your team is not good? Like, you can still be the best player in the world, the best player at playing soccer. Or, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Let's not stay on soccer too long. <laughs> I think it's, it's a good argument, and I do, I do understand that being the best and having had the most chances to prove yourself are two different things. Yeah, and I think it's just about finding an objective measure because... If you if you just say, look, he's the best player, it, it, the, the difference between the first best player and the second best player is not that high, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just say, look, obviously, look yeah. at him, he's the best, and, and you can see it clearly. So you need indicators in the form of trophies won or whatever to, to like support that. I, I think I agree that if we were to choose an objective measure, surely it would be winning a world competition. Yeah, but with, with like... As but, the but team then, gets larger, you play less and less of a role, and it's yeah. And then also, it come it runs into problems when you're comparing people from different eras, like Mar Michael Jordan and uh, Jordan McKenzie. I don't know who, who's the other guy. <laughs> LeBron James. LeBron. So it's all flawed. Ultimately, you can talk. You know, the the conversation will go go on for forever. It doesn't really matter. These are the two techniques I discovered, and they can be genuinely implemented, right? Now, we, we were talking about Ronaldo Messi. 
in reality, if you think that some political party isn't the best, but some other people are saying it is the best, you know, I think asking them a bunch of questions about the, the things that that political party actually achieved and asking them what they promised before and contrasting it to what they actually achieved afterwards and how they delivered on the promise and how the economy is going now will make them run into a contradiction way before you can shout the opposing uh, party and uh, their merits, right? That's the, the bottom line of it. It's just a better argumentative strategy. I think it's true. It's, I guess the point is there's flaws in each point of view and it's, a, it's still like a, an argumentative strategy to make them say their contradictions. Your point of view still has contradictions and if they use the same technique, they would come into the same things. But Yeah, but you're saying it's like, you're almost accusing me of being manipulative where even the best charity has an implementation plan for, you know, giving I, out the food. I don't like, think it's manipula manipulative uh, as long as you stay honest and truthful. I just think you have the best strategy in, the, strategy in that case and you're bound to win if they don't know how to defend themselves from that, but not strictly because you're right. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, so if I were to ask you, have you heard about movie critics in trying to debunk your belief that Lucky Number 11 is the best movie and actually the critics gave it 40%, I wouldn't be right because I myself don't believe in critics. Uh, well, no, what I'm saying is your point of view that you're trying to bring people onto isn't necessarily the truth and it has contradictions too. I'm saying that you're making them realize the flaws in, in their system of thought. And yeah, it's just you're, you're seeing it as, look, I'm objectively right and I'm bringing them over to my side. Well, no, no, but also in asking them questions, you'll certainly get more useful information about their side and actually see their side better as well. Yeah, that's true. It's just all, it's all good. I mean, it, it's all better than... You say one thing, I say the other thing. You supported with three logical arguments. I supported with three logical arguments. We get emotional. Everyone loses. Okay? Yeah, but the way you present it is not, look, I'm going to ask questions because I'm curious. Let me find out about your point of view. You, what you want to do is make them run into like contradictions and tell them, look, and you're they dumb. Will. <laughs> and they will. Yeah, I'm just saying that if they reverse the strategy... You'd probably run into contradictions if it's a complex Way topic. later. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I had. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I think I'll let you ruminate on it while I talk. Not although I hope you listen. Okay. But this is from Dostoevsky. And I think it can be interpreted in a lot of ways. But he says, beauty will save the world. And I wanted to conclude with this because what we're doing, we are the thinking bros and we think and we, I don't know, lay out arguments and we talk about things and we give metaphors or whatever. But I think the truth, the answer for the world, if you conceptualize the world as, I don't know, a battleground of evil and good, what will make, what can make good win is beauty. It's not going up to people and arguing and uh, 
and rationally bringing them about to your point of view political arguments where one side wins the other wins i think what brings us together and this is what is needed for good to win and what makes you appreciate life make what gets you through the hardest battles is beauty so if you look at nihilism in philosophy i don't think that the way to beat nihilism is rationally by by going through steps and saying Although we do do this ourselves, I think the step is realizing how much beauty there is in the world and in the relationships you have with people and appreciating the experience of living, all that. It, it's something outside of the reach of, of words. If, you know, if we can't describe beauty, I think we, we really can't. It's just, I'm going for that sort of, sort of vibe. Okay, I guess I wouldn't use beauty as the umbrella term of regrouping the effect of everything you just said. I think for me it would be human perfection. <laughs> because <clears throat> in an evolutionary sense, it would make sense for every single generation to try to be the best version of themselves. because. The most adaptable will survive, and as long as you output the best out of yourself, right? The little physicists are working away right now at finding a planet, a second planet to live on, little chemists trying to beat cancer, right? All of that is the thing that is pushing humanity forward, and would you call them working 16 hours a day in a lab trying to beat cancer, for example, right? In the ideal sense, if Big Pharma wasn't around. Beautiful? Yes, but that's not the umbrella term I would use. And for me, it would be human excellence or perfection. You said perfection. Yeah, so, I think... I think there's a lot of overlap in, in the sense that we mean those terms, at least while we talk about them right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, I, think, I think I understand the concept you're referring to. I'm just like, is it beauty? Mm. It, does it have to be I, beauty? I, I want to put like a, an ineffable twist on it. Because when you say human perfection, well, we can say even about human perfection. If we take this extra step of saying, look, let's say it's human perfection, but it's always out of reach. We're never going to get there. No one is ever mm -hmm. going to get there, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's just out of reach. And why? Like, we can't rationally arrive at human perfection. But why? We want to. We want to. That's all we strive for. But we never will. What we strive for, I guess, is, is reaching for human perfection and, and progress. And I, I see that as beautiful also. I mean, what you see as beautiful can depend on, on who you are. And it's very subjective. You're right. I guess we would want to make it more objective. But... In, in that, in their suffering for the right cause, like when I put it like this, it's beautiful. Like it's, it's awesome that someone can have something mean so much to them that they dedicate their days to it and their life to it. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, you can reframe it and beauty can indeed be, as you just put it, kind of the intermediary step to perfection in the sense that if you are the person that is seeking perfection, which you never will reach, you're beautiful, right? 
And I think that's why I subconsciously corrected myself for excellence, because excellence is something that we accept to exist. Human excellence. Right. It's, it's more down to earth and it's not... It's so effable. It's, oh my God, it's so effable. <laughs> it's... Yeah, it's something we conceptualize as attainable, right? When you say excellence, you have some steps to get to it, I guess. But what excellence is striving for is perfection, which is out of our reach. Yeah, the unattainable. So it's uh, the form of beauty is perfection. <laughs> Something like that. I see. I, I, can, I can definitely see it. I can definitely see a happy philosopher walking around and looking at these striations of a leaf and seeing nature as beautiful. I, I had another quote. I, I think it was by Marcus Aurelius, but I, I won't say it. It's just... I think there's beauty in just existence. Yeah. And ultimately realizing that and not being bogged down by always thinking and always arguing with everyone and so much conflict in your mind, just appreciating what you have and appreciating humanity for what it is and how amazing all the things that go around us are. Okay, this is really preachy, but I think we're at the same place right now and you, you see where I, where I am. Yeah, I certainly see Stoic, I can see Buddhist perspective, I can see I can see the soldier at war in the trenches just looking back and fight, asking himself what he's fighting for, and it's probably the beauty of his family, his children, his wife. And it's crazy because... His, his country. Yeah, right? and those his are the, well. the ugliest situations. He's in the trenches yeah. seeing people dying, and what drives us forward is beauty. But again, if you... Just describe me the concept before you even told me the word beauty. It would never be the umbrella term I use, but I can definitely see how you would use it, mm -hmm. right? So, okay, Dostoevsky, fine. You win again. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? Yeah, are we... Do you want to keep it for next week or something? Do you want to do, like, one last quote? Or... Because... Or, or is this going to be the signature for success? Is we it just going to be, like, 15 minutes? We can minutes? do quotes, quotes, quotes. Then we will have lied at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's do it. Let's let's not do the quotes. It's fine. It, it can be kept to ten minutes. Okay. So, so Heidi, welcome back. Be good, or get better. If you have be good goals, you're never gonna get better. <laughs> so there are two mind frames uh, when thinking about goals. And it's, do I want to show that I am good and competent? Or am I coming into this with a frame of improving? And all I want to do is learn from this experience. And ultimately, what Heidi shows again and again is that the only viable situation where a be good goal is, the best option, is upon an easy task that you're probably going to perform at anyway. So... You play ping pong in your free time. Your friends organize a little tournament. You go there, have a be good goal, right? Display yourself, whatever, enjoy. Uh, prove to them that you're the best. Nothing that relates to any actual thing that matters. Be good is just not it. And I've been in the, the, that mind frame for a long time. Well, I think it's, it's about being there in the moment and having to perform. Let's say you're talking about ping pong while you're training 
And while you're you want to get better, a mastery goal or a what learn? What did you call it? Be good. No. Uh, mastery or I I don't think I have this word. Be good or get better. Okay, get better. Well, get better is mastery. Okay. Get better is mastery and be good is performance. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think while you're training, you're you're supposed to have get good. Get better. Get better goals. <laughs> get better goals. Because it's in the long term, it's difficult. It'll take you long hours. But when you're at a tournament, I wouldn't say even when it's your friend organizing a little whatever and you want to win. When you're at the tournament, it's I'm better than others. I've done the training. I've done my due diligence. You're not going to... You, you see what I'm saying? It's, I mean, I, I guess you have a get better attitude in the sense that you adapt to how the other player plays and you want to learn about their strategies. But in that moment, you have to win. In the class that is parallel to reading this book, we learned about a story about a, an Olympian who everyone in her team was so confident they were going to win that a person who didn't really know about sports psychology basically put the uniform of that she was going to wear after winning the medal, right? It was like her ceremonial uniform, whatever. She put it on top of her bag for her to wake up to the day of the competition. And as soon as she saw that, uh, she woke up, she just like bunch, bunched it up and hit it somewhere. And then she told the sports psychologist and the guy gets, got scolded, right? So, because in these situations of high performance and flow, and being perfectly relaxed, but also perfectly locked in and whatnot. If, if you're too concentrated on winning, it's going to hurt your performance. So there's some psychological stuff going there. I, I, th I think it's when it's quite easy that you can afford to care to win. But I don't think, I think the confidence itself is good, right? Oh, I've trained for this. I'm prepared. I'm... But you can't be going around saying, oh, I'm going to win this, I'm going to win this, when it's that high stakes, like, actually. I see what you're saying, and this is what I used to think. <laughs> no, I can see both sides, definitely. And I guess it applies more when it's an easy task that you have to win, because you don't have to worry that much about micro-adjustments and adapting within the task as any difficult task will have you do, right? wanting to get better even within that performance. Yeah, and ultimately, if you're in it for the long game and it's not the Olympics that's once every four years and, you know, you're an extremely competent person and you see everything with a get-better attitude, ultimately, there's no better place to learn than competing against other people who are of the top level in the world. Mm -hmm. So, if anything, you're a... What are there yearly competitions of everything right everything soccer whatever you get to the world stage look you were training in your backyard way before on the on the field on your home field you were doing these scrimmages but guess where you're gonna learn the most valuable lessons it's here so if you have the get better it may be a combination but essentially you get it right yeah in our goals where it's not one performance that determines all, 
what we're certainly going to have to stick with is get better goals. School, um, once again, there were studies about people entering a difficult class with get better goals and get, uh, be good, so people who wanted to display their performance, essentially, their grades didn't shift during the semester, and also if they got a bad grade at the beginning of the semester, they were going to maintain it for the rest of it. But get better people, the lower their performance was at the beginning, the more they improved, their grades all improved, well, all, I mean, on average, improved during the semester, and they ended up with higher averages at the end. So they divided organic chemistry classes or something like that. General chemistry, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think it's the lower their grades were, the more they wanted to get better. I think it's just the lesson is that those with performance goals were better on the first exam, and then were bad. The, I don't and think then they were significantly better. I, I think that's what it was. And then the mastery goal people were worse on the first exam, and then got better. But but okay. then ended it with a higher yeah. grade than the, yeah. So in our everyday goals, you have to understand that, and from, from last episode, we learned this as well, you can get better at absolutely anything. I've had a few classes in relation with this, and it was Erickson's theory about geniuses and experts. And essentially... Well, you determine it's the guy who invented deliberate deliberate practice. If you if you've heard about about it, mm, we talked about Erickson with stages of development, but not. Yeah, yeah. He he essentially has this theory that every single expert and genius is made and not born, and he looked into everything. He looked at the hours per day or per week of deliberate practice, which I can get to what that is, before 10 years old, or something like that. And essentially, it's all extremely proportional. All these geniuses are all these violinists that absolutely take the world by storm, Messi, all these people. It's not about talent. It, it genuinely absolutely isn't. Statistically, it can be determined. Tiger Woods, who absolutely dominated golf. Uh, his dad was a little bit of a cuckoo's case. Is that a thing? And by the way, I'm going to be a father like that for sure. At He, he had this idea to make him a, a super genius at golf. And at six months, he used to go to the garage, sit him in front of uh, himself on a high chair and watch him swing, mm -hmm. right? Watch him swing. As soon as he could hold an object, it was a golf club. <laughs> At three years old, you know, he was, that, that was his, his game. And uh, his theory was that all the top golfers at his time just seemed stiff. Right? It all seemed like it, it wasn't a fluid motion. And he thought if while he's doing his motor development, this golf club becomes an extension, a third arm, right? Mm. An extension of his body, he's not going to be stiff. He's going to defeat. Yeah. And so Tiger Woods dominated golf for, I don't know how many years, but essentially he won like all the championships in a row for, so he's a legend now. And uh, Erickson essentially goes and looks at any genius, 
any well not genius it wasn't about intelligence in this case at any expert in any field and he just asks them okay before like 10 years old how many hours a week did you practice this and the answer is always proportional to how much of a genius they are so these get better goals are overall uh, absolutely about well they're just a logical choice just a logical choice you can improve at absolutely anything in this life right david goggins went from what being 300 pounds to running ultra marathons which seems unfathomable to, to you but he's not a genetic specimen right in how many years how many years did, did he go from being probably in the bottom five percentile of humans in terms of health mm -hmm. to probably the point one top i don't know less than 10 years though Right, less than 10 years. And in his 20s. That's incredible. So if most of the people, by definition, are average right now and you're listening to this, you can do it in five. <laughs> that's, that's a guarantee, right? right? Yeah. With half of his willpower, because he came from, from way worse, right? Also, always depending on... How much what, time you have to invest, right? No, what you're doing. It's a difference between ultramarathons where will and just willpower to continue and pain tolerance or... You know, okay, let's say mainly willpower is at play versus tennis. It's true, true. So in highly technical sports, you can get in the 95% percentile in, I don't know, six months of deliberate practice. Okay, just making make, claims again. with numbers, just <laughs> saying things. Check me on that. But, <laughs> Jamie. But... You, you can never be, become a world champion if you weren't doing it since you were like five. Yeah, there's something about development and having C that. Certainly, but most of our goals isn't to become a world champion. Like, if right now I woke up and I wanted to become a world champion boxer, unlucky. But yeah. if I wanted to break every record that I've broken ever in my life, that's something I'm already doing. Right, for sure you can do it. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of practice. Now, a little bit of practice in short. It is sessions of concentration that challenge you enough that are, you know, uninterrupted devotion of your time, energy, and focus into a hard task that is challenging you. It is how you enter into a flow state. And Erickson recommends a maximum of four hours a day because otherwise you're just going to get burnt out and you're going to get distracted and you, it's just impo impossible to... I didn't know that about more. Erickson. That's that's a really cool part of I'm not his sure, research. I'm not sure we're talking about the same one. Eric Erickson. With the double S? It's Eric... Sen? C-S-S-O-N. At the end. Okay. Erickson. Another but Erickson. Eric? I don't know about Eric. Okay, then it's not... We're not another talking about Erickson. Right. Okay, okay. He's like a... The guy who, no, no, he didn't invent flow state. The guy who invented flow state, his name starts with, and he's Russian, right? C, S, Z, I, something like that. <laughs> he's not. I don't think he's Russian, but Mihaili, Sizze Mihaili, Sizze Mihaili, something like that. But Erickson is a top researcher about experts, and what he's saying is, it's all okay. learned not innate but also if you want to become the best in the world you can't really use that because you, I, I guess if you have a time machine and go back 20 years 
Chapter 4, Promotion versus Prevention Goals. Now, promotion goals are kind of a want or your ideal self. And prevention is how do I avoid loss, right? So one of them is how do I maximize gain? The other is how do I avoid loss? We mentioned earlier that optimism is good for promotion-minded people. And for prevention-minded people, if they're optimistic, it takes away their energy of motivation, which is called, which comes in the form of vigilance. So here, she doesn't really identify a better practice. If you are prevention-minded, take note of it. Utilize reasonable pessimism. Realistic, realistic, uh. realistic pessimism. If you are promotion-minded, utilize motivation. So actually just saying, encouraging your friends who have a prevention-minded approach to goals and encouraging them by saying how good they are will hurt their performance. That's, I think that's one of the most interesting things to come out of this. Promotion is about risk-taking. Prevention is about caution. Less new experiences. Helps avoid procrastination because if you're scared of the outcome and don't want to lose, you're going to do it right now. Better planning. Better planning. Perfectionism performs better when there are obstacles. And I think it's cha chapter four, and I didn't take notes for that, but the way you teach to someone these prevention or promotion goals is when they're a child, if you use love, then you give love when something good happens, and that you withhold love when they do something bad. Is that, was that in a reading? And I didn't, did you read that? Yeah, yeah. That's chapter notes? four or five. You didn't take notes. Okay, okay, yeah. No, it's just in the summary of chapter four, which was the only thing that I revised for this. I didn't put those things. Yeah, I read it though, yeah. Good. So, good. For prevention, if you want to build a prevention-minded person, then you the use recipe. punishment instead of love, and you administer punishment upon doing something bad, and withhold punishment when something... Uh, which seems horrible. <laughs> Which seems horrible, and Heidi says, look, it's just two ways of viewing the world, but one of them just seems kind of better. But then the you look at the advantages of prevention-minded. But I feel like I'm, and... I'm prevention-minded predominantly, and that's not the way I was built. Yeah, and it also isn't in any sense negative. So it's fair. Like, Heidi's putting them on, the, on a similar ground is actually fair it feels like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the way she talks about the studies of how to actually ingrain that into people is pretty horrible i, I don't know if if it talks about it in the in the book but it seems to reflect directly upon individualistic and collectivistic culture oh right? that's the, the first thing i wrote asian and american right yeah, yeah. yeah. okay so how can they how can these things help well if you tend to have a certain goal setting mind frame and maybe you you know you were born a certain way just acknowledging that within yourself after we've administered the advantages and the disadvantages and acknowledging pat patterns within your behavior can help you either shift away from them or just i don't know know more about yourself and know exactly why you feel certain ways so 
For example, when you fail a promotion goal, you're going to be depressed. There's going to be a low energy state. And when you succeed in a promotion goal, you're going to be excited and about achievement. So it's going to be high energy state. <laughs> For prevention, it's the opposite. So when you fail, you're going to be in a high energy state of anxiousness. Yeah, yeah, you're going to be agitated, anxious, nervous. And when you succeed, it's going to be relief. Right? You're going to be low energy state where you can breathe out, you're relieved. So if you identify these patterns within yourself, were there... Because you read more for this because I actually wrote the notes. Were there recommendations as to how you could modify these or just acknowledging them and being like, well, I wish I thought more in promotion-minded goals. I think I, I remember her saying that it's not as straightforward as the chapter before yeah, yeah. when where one is better than the other. Here, it's about identifying your pattern and knowing the intricacies, I guess, of your personality more and knowing how to apply it. Yeah, and again, it's situational at times, but if you know you're 100% in one of the ways of thinking, maybe it's worth exploring the other. Also, one important thing I forgot is the study about uh, depression with get better goal setters. Get better goal setters were, were, when things went wrong, they were like, okay, well, this is how I'm going to learn from. But like, the, the worst it got... How do I fix it? Yeah, how do I fix it right now? Uh, in relationships, when something went wrong, they were most likely not to abandon and get over hurdles. Good, be good is about displaying... It's also about having a fixed theory of intelligence, right? If you think you're either smart or you're not smart and that's not, never going to change, you're obviously going to want to always display that you are smart. So it's going to be the same. It's going to affect all your relationships. If something goes wrong, you pull away the fastest way possible before everyone discovers that you're a fraud and you were actually not that you know, emotionally intelligent, uh, mature. Because you can't really like fail if you withdraw the fastest way possible. If you have a get better mindset, whoops, I made a mistake. Okay, I'm going to take this into account. This is going to be make me a re richer person to never repeat this mistake ever again and learn from my experiences. Let's get through this hurdle. Let's talk about it. As teachers, they're more likely to ask for... <coughs> oh, that's getting cut. Ask for advice on managing the classroom managing the classroom reading more about the subject and instead of just sending the uh bad students to, to the, the principal. principal yeah okay i'm pretty satisfied you know a short little discussion about success succeed uh again the practical nature of that is self-explanatory for the first part don't don't settle for the little dopamine boost that you get upon reading a good quote. Actually, if it matters to you for your life, take 15 minutes thinking about how you're going to implement it in your life. And if it's, I don't know, Rockies, ultra motivating, there is no tomorrow. Uh, why wouldn't you do what you're trying to put off for tomorrow today? Well, the first thing you do when you hear that quote should be to do the hardest thing you ha you try to put off to tomorrow, right? 
if you have been trying to start exercising, the moment you hear there is no tomorrow and like that quote, put the phone down and go train. Right? That's that's the bottom line. So you you instantly implement it because tomorrow, instead of forgetting the Rocky quote, you're gonna remember through the soreness of your muscle that muscles that you actually acted upon it and it's gonna be a constant reminder that well it's gonna be weird if i don't train today well I, idealistically again. so <laughs> quotes aren't just for enjoying words if you want them to change your life change your life yourself yes that's that's this my, a good way that's to my quote it. yeah yeah all right so on after three one two three nine, nine. yes okay it it's it, it's completely random could have been 10 could have been eight it doesn't matter i don't know what we were trying to figure out what are out. we doing thank you for listening well we figured yeah we we figured out the quotes in the sense that we extrapolated four quotes to an hour and that's exactly how you implement them. right right if yeah if you like that quote churn them in your mind like you churn butter make them yours make them yours thanks for listening we're the thinking bros we'll see you next week if you want more information go to thinkingbros.com or contact us at thinkingbros at gmail.com and uh, we'll see you next week see ya